Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Welcome to our first Torah study of the new cycle. Yay! Of the new year. Yay! Right? And the... The best part of it is it means we get to return uh, to the book of Breshit, to the book of Genesis, which is very exciting. Um, we are now going to be in the second portion of every Parsha, because last we- year was the first year of the triennial cycle, so we were reading the first third of every Parsha, or thereabouts. So now we'll be in yeah, the first eight verses. Um, now we're going to be in the second hunk of every Parsha. So we, um, we're in chapter 2, and at the beginning of chapter 2, we get the creation of a garden, right? So we have two creation stories. We know this. We've been studying Torah together enough to know there are two creation narratives. We are in the second creation narrative. How does the second creation narrative begin? There is a garden. There are rivers. God plants the garden. And in the garden, God places... Oh, man. Ha Adam. Yes? Ha Adam, the human. Exactly. Or as my teacher of blessed memory, Dr. Tikva Frein Rakensky used to say. Yes. I have been coming for a long time. You've been coming for a long time. All right, the earthling, right? Because his name is Adam. From Adama, Earth. So it is absolutely not a stretch to call him the Earthling. Why? Because right now he's got the definite article before Adam in Hebrew. The definite article, ha. What is ha? The. The Adam. The Earthling. That is clearly what this means. He's not going to become something without the definite article until what? Till there's somebody else. Exactly right. All right. So he's Ha'adam, the earthling, that before in creation story number one was Zachar v'nekeva, male and female. All right. So let's look at what's going on here. 15, someone read. So God Adonai took the man, placing him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God Adonai then commanded the man, saying... You may eat all you like of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of all knowledge you may not eat, for the moment you eat of it, you shall be doomed to die. Then God Adonai considered, It is not good that the man be alone. I will make him a helpmeet. So God Adonai formed the wild animals and the birds of the sky out of the soil and brought the man to see what he would call each one. And whatever the man called it, that became the creature's name. The man gave names to every domestic animal and to the birds of the sky and to all of the wild animals, but for himself, Adam found no helpmate. Then throwing the man into a profound slumber so that he slept, God Adonai took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. Now God Adonai built up the rib taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, This time... Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, let this one be called woman, for this one is taken from man. 
So it is that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they become one flesh. All right, let's just stop there for a moment. I'm going to try not to spend too long on this so that we can get to the rest of the story, but we'll see how far we get. All right, so... So in the Garden of Eden, we get the Adam who's supposed to, to ovda, to work her, meaning the earth, ulushomra, and to look after her, to guard her, to guard it. So what is he supposed to do with the garden? He's supposed to work the garden. What does that mean? Don't know. Possibly. How does he know how to cultivate a garden? Don't know. Uh, does he need to do that to eat? Don't know. Um, but he's to work the garden and to guard it, to keep it. And God commands the human saying, from every tree of the garden, you are free to eat. Except for which one? <laughs> Look how many answers we get. Da'at. Tov ve ra. What's da'at? Let's say for now, knowledge. Tov? Ra? All right. So of all the trees you may eat, but as for the tree of knowing good and evil... You must not eat of it, because the moment you eat of it, what will happen? That is not what the text says. You will die. The minute you eat of it, you will, well, it doesn't say the minute, but as soon as you eat of it, you will die. There's already an implication there of an interpretation, because that is not what the text says. Which is, and I don't like that, that translation, I will tell you why. <laughs> I know you're shocked that I'm going to tell you why I don't like it. So the reason I don't like that is because of one of the things we're going to get to. So what are the concerns so far in the garden? Oh, wait. So let's go to um, the next verse. And God says, it is not good for what? For the Adam to be levad, to be alone. All right, so God forms out of the earth everything, right, that's living and brings each one to Adam, who then names it, right? Naming has great power, doesn't it? This is the first place we get it, but we get it in the rest of Torah. Naming has incredible power. So the man names everything, but for him there was not found a what? Ugh. Ugh, 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 ugh. English. Ezer. Remember this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ezer Kenegdo. What's Ezer? No. Help meet. What the heck is that, anyway? What does that even mean, help meet? Ezer. Helper. Helper. What's Kenegdo? Corresponding to. What's neged in Hebrew? Opposite. Opposite. Against. Neged. I fight neged you. I fight against you. You are over and against. You are opposite in some way. So a helper that is 
his against, his opposite, his corresponding in a way that's about, that only happens when you correspond, when you face one another. Let's let's hold on. Let we're we're gonna get there, but for right now, what do we know? He's not found anything that is his opposite. That is his. Let's say negative, meaning you have the picture. You 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 look at the neg the reverse. You know something like that. Exactly. All right. He's not found that. Um, he's not found something that is against him. Meaning facing him, right? So for you to be against, you're, it usually implies in front of me, you know, against this way. What about to compliment? So that is, neged does not mean compliment. That doesn't mean it's not where, that does not mean it is not an interpretation, like balance, but that is not what the text says. So, so he seems to be looking for something to alleviate the condition of being levad, alone. And what is going to mitigate that condition? Apparently, a helper. <laughs> Thanks, Lois. Um, a helper that is over and against him. We're not told who, whose perception that is. Is this the omniscient narrator's perception? Is this Adam's perception? We don't know. Of what he's looking for? It seems to be the omniscient narrator, but, you know, maybe it's from Adam's perspective. We don't know. What we do know, right, is that it wasn't located among the things God had created so far. So God put a tardema, on Adam, on the earthling, a tardema is always, uh, think of general anesthesia, right? Complete, like, gone. Put him out. Offline. Put him out. Well, I was wondering when I read it, why, it seems like it's redundant. God forbid. So point it out. Profound slumber, comma, so that he slept. So he is put into a tardema, right? Okay, I don't like so that he slept. Okay. Bayishan, and he slept. This one Vayishan vayikach. He slept and he took. Right? Torah is very terse. Torah is very concise. Right? Give me the verbs. What happened? He slept. He took. What did God take? Reuben. It says a rib. I know, right? For him to jump out there like that? <laughs> All right. So we've seen lots of times in the, in the ancient world, if you think about Greece and you think about other places, Zeus, you know, has somebody spring from his head, right? It is not a terribly unusual thing, right, that something would spring from something else. In our story, this is the first time something has sprung from something else, though. Where has everything else come from? God. God created it. And in our chapter 2 story, where does God create it all from? from the, earth. the earth. Everything comes from the earth except Eve. She comes from something already alive. Already breathing. Already with the 
you know, Ruach Elohim in it, the spirit of God in it. This is what she's created from. So it says that God took from one of his uh, slotav. So we're not sure exactly what this means. I don't love the interpretation rib. I don't love it. I love that, Reuben. Already he knows to say, it says, because he knows. Um, So, because it seems a little too weird to think of taking a rib that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If God took one of his flanks, that makes a lot more sense. If in chapter one we had Zachar Barautan, God created them male and female, and now we have a taking of one of the flanks of Adam. Tell me where the rabbis can harmonize chapter one and chapter two. How can they not be in conflict? We had a hermaphrodite. Zachar v'nekeva. The earthling was male and female. But it has no ezer kenegdo. It has nothing over and against it. That is because we need both. So what happens? God divides. The earthling takes one flank and now has a separate being Now there is relationship. When I was pregnant, I loved that daughter already. I loved that child, but I didn't really, right? Because it was still part of me, right? So I loved it, but I didn't know it. I I couldn't know it. There was no, there was no other for me, I couldn't wait for this baby to come out because, first of all, I couldn't wait for her to get out. There was not room in there for two of us anymore. But I also was, I was desperate to know this being. I was desperate to be in relationship. But she had to be outside of me, over and profoundly against me, before I could be in relationship, before there could be love before there could be companionship, before the loneliness is alleviated, there has to be division. So on some level, it makes complete sense that Zachar and Nekeva had to be divided in order for there to be someone over and against Adam with whom he could be in relationship. And someone who could offer him help. He needs help. She's not a secretary. Think of the psalm, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my secretary? (laughs) Assistant pizza driver? No, I will lift up mine eyes from whence comes my ezer. And the ezer in that poem is God. This is clearly, clearly a strong statement about who she is, who this being is going to be. Yes. Yes. Which is why I hate help meet. What does it even mean? Like, like. Right. Like there. So it's completely. If you look at the text and just stay, you know, really with the text, it is very clear that she is an equal. Absolutely. And and even is offering ezer. 
help. So there's even a sense that maybe he needs something that he doesn't have without her. Yes. So this may be a stretch. But, okay. But couldn't you use this as justification for stem cells? I was just going to say. In terms of what? Cloning. Um, in terms of that, that woman was the only thing that came from a living being, comma, and it was good. I don't think there is a problem with stem cells. Well, I don't have a problem with stem cells, but a lot of people did for a long time. Oh, embryonic stem cells. They they would say that God did this, not man. 100%, but we are supposed to be... So bara, bara is only God, ever, right? Because we are supposed to imitate God. So when God is compassionate, we're supposed to be compassionate. So we don't say, if God did it, I can't do it. But bara is only God, ever. Everything else is, by the way, there is no creation by human beings. Everything done by human beings is what verb? To form or fashion. Oh, interesting. Yatsar. It is not bara. Bet Reish Aleph is only God. What's the Hebrew where they use rib that you're saying blank? I don't understand why that's um, necessarily more logical that it would mean. I mean, it's a nice interpretation, but what does the Hebrew actually mean? Do we not know? Well, we're not sure. We're not sure. So, I mean, what difference, maybe it makes no difference where this new earthling is coming from, whether it's it's part of the first one, and it's from that. Because I think there's a diminutive sense to a rib. Or at I least I think that's that how it gets interpreted. I so I think I like this idea of taking a, a, a side of him. Right. It's a, it, it's, she's his other half. Yes. There's a way that rib is diminutive, that, I that. and I don't like Did it. Did Hebrew give us a diminutive? No. <laughs> what it doesn't. Mine? Like your side. Side? Yeah. Yeah. So cut cut me from here to here in half and take this side. But that wouldn't impair him. Oh, well, but God is the rofe. God is the healer, right? Presumably, taking a rib isn't going to be pleasant either, right? But it's less invasive, you're saying. It's more magical. Okay. So some people like rib. Keep it. That's fine. Um... In any case, we get her, right? And God brings her to Ha'adam, the earthling, who says, finally, this one, bone from my bone, a support for the reading of rib. Bone from my bone, basar mi basarif, meat from my meat, right? Flesh from my flesh. Let this one be called Isha, woman. From Ish was she taken. All right, so has he been called Ish before this? No, he has not. He's not been called Ish. He's been called Ha'adam. So now we, he says, call her Isha because... What am I doing? Isha because from Ish is she taken. All right, the rabbis have a beautiful interpretation here. Isha, woman, Ish, man. They must dwell not only with one another, but with God. Right? Without God's presence, without a relationship to God, what do you have if you have both of these? What is the name of God? Yud? Hey? 
What do you have? What are you left with? Aish. Fire. They are consumed. Why are those slashes? The slashes between the lines. The slashes between the lines in English is the is what he said. Is what Adam said? Because it's it's like poetry. But but really, in the Hebrew, we don't have that, just just in the English. Correct. It, it's broken out differently in the Hebrew. It's showing you the the calligraphy, Reuben. It's showing you the calligraphy of the Hebrew. It is separate. It's written each wherever you see a slash, the line breaks, and there yes, there's a separate line. Yes, ma'am. There, if you look, if you, there's whole studies done of the terminology used for God. It, there's huge scholarly, masterly works done. Sometimes it is the author. It is the source material that uses one name or the other name for God. Sometimes it is an indicator of how old a text is. Um, Shaddai is one of those. El Shaddai is a very old referent. Um, so sometimes we see, like, the Lord God is your English translation, is Adonai Elohim or yod heh Elohim. So trying to combine those terms. But there, there's lots to talk about in terms of what it means. It's just, you can't just point to one and say, oh, that, that means this. In general, the rabbis point to the name yod heh being the name of mercy and Elohim being the name of justice. Kind of the stricter, just God is Elohim, yod heh that source of life and love and compassion and it doesn't always hold but but definitely um, Adonai and Yudhei Vavhei and Elohim were two different sources the J source, the Yahwist and the E source the Elohist but it's, it's not as clean as that, you can't just look at every reference and go oh okay that's an E text or that's a J text but, but that's originally where a lot of it comes from or different sources, a northern and a southern Priestly, non-priestly, it gets complicated. All right. So we get told what? We get told that hence a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife so that they become once again one flesh. That seems like a non sequitur. The whole thing, mother and father and... and A non sequitur? Clings to his wife. All right. So this is one of those places in Torah. This This is how the elephant gets its trunk. This is a line that tells us, and this is why the elephant has such a long nose. We have a lot of these in Torah. To jump to the conclusion. Yes. Okay. To, and this is, to this day, that is why we don't eat the sciatic nerve on an animal after the Jacob story. Right? Oh, sure. I was just <laughs> going to say that. So, so we, get, we get this in a lot of places in Torah. So it's a literary device. Okay. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a non sequitur. Right. It's just it, we we get that a lot. All right. I'm wondering it's bringing us it's it. bringing us into today. This it's an etiological text, right? It, this text is explaining how and why it is mm-hmm. a man leaves his parents and clings to a woman. Right. We just got the origin of that. Right. Okay. Not that there was a mother and a father for Adam. Nachon. Nachon. Exactly. But doesn't doesn't it also say? Certainly, this would uh, suggest that women were powerful. They could 
He needs her. Things are going to get changed up a little bit after the next episode. This was written by patriarchy. Yes. It also says a man and woman should leave their mother and father. It says the man should leave his mother and father, which would mean matrilineal and matrilocal. He should leave and go live with her family, probably. Uh Right? This, we are, we are, there is within memory a time when the culture would have been matrilocal because there would have been a creatrix. Yes? God would have been female, would have birthed the world, and cultures likely were matrilocal, matrilineal, um, within memory. All right. But it doesn't stay that way. This is definitely patrilineal, patrilocal. All right. Where are we? We're at 25. Somebody read at 25 because I don't think we read that. The two of them were naked, and the man and his wife, uh, yet they felt no shame. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild beasts that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman replied to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the other trees of the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said you shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You're not going to die, but God knows that as soon as you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like divine beings who know good and bad. When the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable as a source of wisdom, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both them were opened, and they perceived that they were naked, and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Okay. So we're told at the beginning of all of this episode business that they were in a place of being a room. Yes? They are a room. Naked. And, I don't like but at all here, they were naked and lo yit bashashu. And they were not ashamed. Okay, that seems to be the natural way of things. In Eden. So what is there to be embarrassed about? They were naked. That's the way you are. That's how you come into this world. Right? All right? So it seems to be the the natural order of things. And then all of a sudden we get chapter 3 beginning with V'hanachash haya arum mikol chayatasadeh. The serpent was the most arum of all the animals. Is the serpent naked? Has no body here. Has no body here. Neither does a lizard. Neither does a fish. (laughs) Okay. So... (laughs) So it seems to be a wonderful literary pun, not a pun, but a purposeful right use of this term. And I don't think it's lost on the author at all to choose this word. They are both a room, naked and not embarrassed. They are both a They are both 
cunning and wise and are not embarrassed. So humans have a different capacity than all other animals. We are a room in a way that other animals are not, right? We are we have a capacity for speech, for language, for culture, for learning that other animals do not. <coughs> so I think you can read either one, naked or cunning, and they don't feel shame about their state of things in any way, whichever way you read it. The Nachash was the most arum of all the animals. So the closest to Adam and Chava of all the animals. Interesting. Not the dolphin or the monkey or the dog, but the Nachash, the serpent. All right, tell me what you know of serpents in the ancient world. Magic. Magic. All right. How are they representative of magic? So we see his staff turn into a snake. So do Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. When the snakes are biting the people and they're dying, he raises up a copper nechoshet, a snake thingy. (laughs) (laughs) And it stops the plague. The, the, The staff of Asclepius, yes? The staff with the snake around it. <coughs> healing. It's not doctors. It's healing. Because healing was tied to magic. It was tied to forces beyond our understanding, comprehension, ability to control all those things. The original serpent imagery. Original, original, original. A symbol of the creatress. The serpent always No. So what's the big deal with the serpent? It's not just a snake. First of all, it's walking and it's talking. (laughs) So it is not clearly a snake. Serpent is much think I mean think in your mind of of legend, of myth, of powerful mythology and powerful mythological images. It's not a snake. The Loch Ness monster. You think of Grundle. Right? You know, you, you think serpent is winged and big and a room. Dragon. Dragon. Right. All right. So in that vein, that is what we're dealing with here. And so the serpent comes to the woman, approaches the woman. Remember that this was a symbol for the goddess. The serpent was a symbol, a representation of the goddess. So who does the serpent approach? Of course, the woman. There is absolutely, you cannot, I don't think, ignore a patriarchal reinterpretation of how things are here. And it's going to be in response to what was. And what was was a a relationship between women and the goddess that this is going to consider absolutely not only problematic, but evil. So of course the Nachash goes to the woman. Because that's part of our story that, you know, we have to know is underneath all this, is behind in the past. And says to her, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is that what God said? 
No. So why does the Nahash start with something that is not true? Because he's a snake. <laughs> <laughs> he's a snake. He's setting a foundation with her. So he's setting a foundation, clearly, a of a conversation. So, but starting with something that is not accurate, a statement that's not accurate. And asking her, did God really say that? Now, does the Nachash know what God really said? He knew. He knows. Mickey says he knows. Why? All right. So we don't know, but what? But he, it's possible that the woman didn't know because she. Ha 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 ha! So hold on to that, Linda. Bring that back to us. We're going to need that again. <laughs> did God really say you shall not any eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman replies to the Nachash. We may eat of the fruit of the other trees of the garden. It is only about fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. All right. Is that what God said? No. What did God say? If what? So this Nachash has a slightly different version. What's different? It's touch it. Touch it. The snake has added something. The serpent's added something. God said, right? No, I mean, not the serpent. It's Eve. Yes? Eve is quoting God. Eve is misquoting God. Why? Because what? Because she didn't hear God. Because God was talking to whom? So if God was talking to Adam, this is what Eve takes from the conversation. Who did she get this information from? Adam. Adam? Or, or she was eavesdropping. Or she was oh. eavesdropping. Oh. Uh. So, but you've got to assume that God spoke loudly. Well, if she's <laughs> eavesdropping, she misheard God. Because God did not say this. Or misquoted. She has no reason to misrepresent to the Nachash what she's been told. She wasn't even around when God said it. I mean, well, she, she was not was a around. separate was he being. Part of, she was part of Adam. She was part of Adam. You would think she would have heard it. Just like he well, if she's a rib. <laughs> she's a whole flank with an ear. If she's a flank <laughs> with an ear, maybe she heard it. If she was just a rib, then maybe she didn't. Right? But we, we can assume we can assume she's not held responsible for hearing while she's part of Adam. I mean, let's just make that leap. So you're assuming Rabbi he Renner? Told her, so he told her. Could this be a siyad, kind of like the rabbis like to institute these sort of fences that they build around the actual rules so that you don't even get close to violating? Ah, so maybe Eve is the first halachist. <laughs> And she understands we shouldn't eat from it, and so in order to make sure we don't eat from it, we shouldn't touch it at all. Don't look at it, don't think about it, don't smell it. You walk by it like this, right? Lovely. Eve as the first rabbi. Of course. So you shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. So why don't I like... Never mind. So, <laughs> so if you eat it or touch it, she's told you will die. 
Okay. So, what does Eve know of that of that word? Nothing. What does Adam know of that word? Nothing. Nobody's died. Nobody's died. So don't touch it because you will kabliminate. <laughs> okay. I shouldn't eat that because I will kabliminate if I do. Okay. So, got it. Right? So, um, they have no idea what this word means. But then they also have no idea what tree means. (laughs) Presumably, they understand what tree and eat mean. Laura, you gotta have a willing suspension of disbelief on some level. Right? But clearly. How do they know what die means? Because no one's died. They've had an experience of tree and of eat. They've had no experience of die. What's die? All right. I mean, we, we assume. They've had no experience of die. Right, and that they have had an experience of trees. Nachon, nachon. And of sky, and of grass, right? And all the things were named, but death wasn't. All right, so... (laughs) So the serpent says to the Isha, you are not going to die. Rather, God knows that as soon as you eat of the tree... Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like divine beings who know good and bad. Is a snake telling the truth? Susan says yes. Reuben, what do you say? Yeah. Yeah. Susan says yes, definitively. Reuben says, yeah. (laughs) Reserving some wiggle room. It says here. <laughs> it says in the commentary. Can you address the issue of what good and bad mean in this context? I mean, there's no mitzvot. What no laws or rules? What do they know about die? What do they know about good? And what do they know about evil? Nothing. 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 Presumably, so far there hasn't been die or ra, and because there's no ra. There is no tov, except for God. Right? God pronounces creation tov. So inherent in creation is tovness, for sure, at least by God's calculation. But Adam and Chava, we could say, if they are in creation and creation is tov, that all they know is tov. You tell me. You tell me. (laughs) All right. What is the connection between being a room and knowing good and evil? So there's. So after eating, after making a choice and eating, they create loincloths and cover their nakedness. So there's clearly a connection between a distinction between Tov and Ra that leads to an understanding that a roomness is not appropriate. I'm not going to make that jump because I'm not sure that's what it means. 
I think it might mean once she eats, once they both eat, and now have this knowledge, and have exercised free will, and are living in the land of consequences, they realize that crossing boundaries and crossing limits has consequences. Being a room in a land of consequences is no longer an appropriate state all the time. It's appropriate sometimes. But they are now, if you will, fully mature. They come into a level that every adolescent does. At what age does your daughter stop running around the house naked? When? It's exactly when they start to understand something about their own nakedness and their own sexuality that doesn't occur to them. It's not developmentally there at six, thank God. And it's happening too young, if you ask me, but right that they have an awareness that starts to come that there's good and there's not good and that it's appropriate now for me to cover, not out of shame. My daughter's not ashamed. She knows that now I believe she knows there's raw out there when people regard her because she's got her own awakening sexuality, right? You know, that, that there's a way people can look at her naked that doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Nothing's changed about them. It's changed in her because she knows now that there is a way that she can be looked at as a room that doesn't feel good in every situation, Right? There isn't. There isn't an implication there. I'm not drawing that implication. I'm not saying she knows anything about anything. I'm saying that when they eat, something changes in them that they now have a level of knowledge about distinction that renders them uncomfortable being a room all the time. Where does it say they're uncomfortable being naked? Because they cover up. They now are going to wear Lloyd. They're going to. They're going to wear because we wear clothes. That's why. Yes. So right. They they dress now. So they've covered themselves. Something's changed, and we wear clothes. This is a story about us. This is a story about the world. This is not a story about a garden. This is a story about us. Something changes in us, and we cover ourselves. Children running around the garden, the backyard are a room and happy and free and wonderful and open until we gain a certain dot, a certain understanding, a certain knowledge. Rabbi Renner? Um, I think that the Hebrew you're actually supposed to read it as well is Oshashu. That's actually a future tense verb. Like it's not actually saying that they weren't uh, ashamed in that moment. It's talking about the future and what that would hold for them and being on this trajectory actually. Lovely. Lovely. So reading the future tense as a foreshadowing of a state that would be, that isn't even in existence yet, embarrassment. It's so interesting talking about developmental children. I have a four-year-old granddaughter who was at my house yesterday, and she was running around without clothes, and then it was time to go home. And she said, oh, now I have to get dressed because the people outside 
will be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> no self-image problems here. Right? They'll be... And, and actually, that is sometimes how they come to it, isn't it? We tell them it's no longer appropriate. What, you know, when, when my daughter wanted to swim with her friends, you know, naked, and it's like then, you know, one of the parents said it's not appropriate. And I was like, oh, okay, right? I, I was being educated, too. Like, I guess they're too old now, whatever that means, right? So, like, it wasn't the kids. It was, like, the adults saying that's no longer appropriate. Or but the kids were siblings. fine. <laughs> <laughs> as, as in here, it says um, the action of the loincloth for the act of putting on clothes that the clear mark of civilization. All right. So, because we're talking about us. We're not talking about a myth. We're talking about us. We wear clothes. Civilized people wear something. Sometimes. Sometimes. All right. Okay, hang on. Even if it's a cord around the waist. Right? We, right? There's, there, there's something that we do generally. Um, all right. So, okay. Give me a second. Or not. <laughs> Go ahead, Nicole. No, I'm just saying it's interesting how clothes have evolved because clothes today are about how to make you look better. And it's just interesting when you when you think about that your birthday suit is really your how you're supposed to look. And now clothes have we're talking about what we're talking about and now you Well, yes and no. I think that in anthropology, every single human culture ever has developed adornment. We've always adorned ourselves, always, particularly women. Um, And we adorn what we love. So people make elaborate gifts of clothing or bracelets or shoe cover, you know, feet covering. Like, so always. Um, Certainly... Clothing has changed. I'm not going to argue that. As civilization has changed and as the culture has changed, certainly. But I think there, there, is, there are two senses of clothing f- across human culture. One is a covering that's considered appropriate for your state with everybody else. And one is adornment. I hear you saying that we may be blurring the lines between those in ways that are unprecedented. So... Doesn't it really say um, Kagurod is really like a belt, not exactly a loincloth? Presumably they are covering their sexual parts. That is what we can assume. In here, in here, the English translation, it says, and made themselves skirts. So, I mean, I just think we can be... I just think there's no reason to doubt that this is about sexuality and coming to awareness about our bodies and coming to awareness about what nudity now means and communicates. Um, All right, so let's, I want to push on a little bit. So when the woman, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for eating, a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable as a source of wisdom, what did she do? She made a decision and she ate. 
touched it and she ate it. Ah, Bert says, well, she took first, it. she touched it. And what happened? She didn't die. And because she didn't die, she might not columnate either if she eats it. Because after all, she was either given misinformation or heard wrong, whatever. But presuming she wasn't around, presuming it was Adam who got the instruction and gave it to Eve, she was misinformed. And because she was misinformed, was led to an erroneous conclusion when she touches it and doesn't die. That's one interpretation. And then she gave it to her husband, and God had specifically told him not to do it, and he ate it. She gave to her husband, and he ate. Does he say, wow, it's beautiful, and is a source of wonderful food, and will be a source of wisdom? Does he say that too? No. She gives it to him, he eats. And he doesn't say God said no. He doesn't wrestle with should I, shouldn't I. He doesn't say, but God said he eats. Husband just does what the wife says. As it seems so. Heard of that. When that happened, she puts it on the table. He'll eat it. So, v'tipachna eneishnehem. This is a beautiful Hebrew word used only for eyes. Tipach, um, to open. It is only said of the eyes. So, and their eyes were opened. Vayedu, and now they knew that they were Arum. They knew that they were Arum, naked or cunning, and they sewed together fig leaves, which are very large leaves, and made, right, whatever this is that they make. Right? Chagorot. So we're not, you know, you interpret it however you want. And they hear the sound of God moving about in the garden at the breezy time of day. I'm going to read just so we can push through. And the man and his Isha hid from God among the trees of the garden. And God called out to the man. Notice, not them. God called to the Ish, and says, Ayeka, where are you? How could God not know? (laughs) Does God need a GPS system and God is lacking one? God forbid. Of course God knows where they are. What is this question? Eliana Faye, where are you? (laughs) It's not like I don't know, Right? Ayeka, where are you? What have you done? But God's going to let the Ish answer, right? So mom calls you down the stairs. Where are you? Ayeka, the rabbis, of course, have a beautiful interpretation that, that God is always, forever, and still calling Ayeka. Where are you? Why do you hide from me? Where are you? And he didn't say Hineni. Where are you? And the Ish answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was a room. 
so I hid. So God asks the next logical question, who told you that you were a room? Did you eat from the tree which I have forbidden you to eat from? And busted, says Paula. Uh So does the Eve said, yes, indeed, I did. And gracious father, I am sorry. I will not do it again. I cannot believe that I've done this. Please forgive me. He said it's her fault. Oh, it's worse. It's worse. What is he saying, Laura? The woman you put at my side. She gave me of the tree and I ate. It's your fault. You gave me a baby brother. It's your fault. And if not yours, it certainly hers. It wasn't mine. She gave it to me and you gave her to me. So be looking at me. And God says to the Isha, what is this you have done? Does the woman say, I'm so sorry, God, I should not have led him astray. I shouldn't have eaten, and I certainly should not have given it to him. He could have stayed our room and happy, right? Does she say this? No. What does she say? The Nahash. But she goes a little further than Adam. Adam just says, she, she gave it to me, and you gave her to me. What, is, what does she say, at least? The, the Nahash tricked me, which supports Bert's reading. The Nahash tricked me. How? The Nahash said, if you touch it, you'll die. And she touched it and didn't die. Possibly. How else could the Nahash have tricked her? She seems to believe the Nahash did something purposefully to confuse it so that she wound up eating. In any case, does she take responsibility? So have either of them taken any responsibility for their exercising of free choice? Say the rabbis, this is the moment they lose paradise. They can start blaming other They lost Eden in this moment. Because they could have said, yes, we ate. Because we wanted to be like you. We wanted wisdom. That's a good thing. And one interpretation of this story is then then they could have remained in Eden forever after. Good. You ate. Yay. You're growing up. Wonderful. Terrific. Let's have a birthday party. <laughs> right? But they didn't. They lied. They, they didn't lie. They did not lie. Let's be clear. They did not take responsibility. And what did they do immediately? Not only did they not take responsibility, what did they do? They blamed someone else. And this is the moment that God realizes, all right, it's over. How we've been together is over. And now the consequences of crossing boundaries, 
youth to adolescence, whatever we want to talk about, adolescence to adulthood, whatever. Crossing boundaries has consequences. Free choice comes with consequences. And knowledge between what is good and what is bad has consequences. You you have to cross a boundary to have knowledge. Was it a mistake? I don't know. Because remember, this is a story coming to explain this, not a garden. Because if you push it, really, did we want to hang out in a garden just eating fruit, like, and just hanging around and, like, doing nothing? Okay. I suppose on at the end of a busy week, it is my vision of what would be a perfect world and a perfect life, yes. But really, is that what humanity is really about? I don't think so. I think it's about eating the apple. And Tov and Ra are about learning. And learning is about taking action that has consequences and then deciding the next time what to do based on the da'at that you now have. And that's what they move to now. I once Googled why did Eve uh, take the fruit, take the apple. There were so many explanations I couldn't sit still that long enough to read them all. But one of them was, it said she knew she was perfect so she, somehow she had the concept of repentance that she could never have because she did everything perfectly. So she did something imperfectly so she could experience repentance. It's a very rabbinic interpretation, right? You want to read a forgiving way to read it? She did tshuva. Tshuva can't exist in the world without a mistake. And so Eve makes a mistake so tshuva can enter the world. Very rabbinic. All right, let's look at verse 22. Let's skip over the part that none of us are terribly enamored with. So you're going to give birth in pain, blah, blah, blah. Men are going to work hard. They're going to have careers. 22. (laughs) 322. Read. And the Lord God said, now that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and bad, what if he should stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever? So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to till the soil from which he was taken. He drove the man out. And stationed east of the Garden of Eden, the cherubim and the fiery, ever-turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. All right. Why did I jump here? God says, now that Ha'adam, back to this Ha'adam business, not the Ish. Now that the earthling has become like us. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Linda. And it's, and it's like plural. whom? Plural? Knowing the difference between good and evil. So Eve, in wanting to be more like God and eating from the tree, was she right or wrong? She was right. In eating from the tree, they God says it got self. They become more like God. That's what she wanted. Okay? She got it. So now that they know the difference between good and evil and have become more like us, you can imagine the rabbinic interpretations here. Who's the us, though? You tell me. Who's us? Not the animals. It has to be... Who's us? us, plural. You're just referring to what God knows. God and the serpent. Ooh, nice. God and the serpent. Nice, Carol. Very interesting. 
a remnant probably of polytheism. When all of the gods were subsumed into the one god, we have some linguistic leftovers of polytheism, of a pantheon. Um, po- the rabbis are not going to go there, God forbid. For the rabbis, they're going to say this is God and the tzva'ot, the hosts of heaven, the angels. Okay. Um, but in any case, we know she was right. In eating of the fruit, she would become more like God. And they are now. And because of that, what if the Ish or the Hadam is going to stretch out his hand and take from what tree? The tree of life. And live forever. That's a different tree. It's a different tree. And what does it suggest? Which I love because nobody pays attention to this enough. What does it suggest about death? So tell me what else it means about death in the garden. How do we know that? If he takes from the tree of life, he'll live forever. If he doesn't, presumably, he'll die. Death is already present in the garden. Because I don't like this business that it gets interpreted that because they eat, they're going to die. Where is that in the text? It does not say that. The serpent said that. But that wasn't the truth. God said the moment you eat of it, you will die. They didn't. So lots of people go to, but what it means is the possibility of death enters the world. Not necessarily. It's not in the text. The moment you eat of it, you will die. Possibly meaning you will die to being a room and not know it. You will die to a certain kind of innocence. You will die to a level of unawareness. Okay, yes, because God forbid God would lie. Right? There has to be some kind of meaning of what die means. But lest he take his hand and eat of the tree of life and live forever suggests he's going to die if he doesn't do that. So we are created mortal, not immortal. We are created mortal. And once we know the difference between good and bad, no longer is it appropriate for us to even have the possibility of living forever. Taking taking our consequences, having made our choices, now It cannot be that we live forever. That wouldn't be a good thing. We don't know why. Why was it okay before they did that? Don't know. So what are the only concerns in Eden? One, knowledge knowledge of good and evil is a concern. Even in paradise, there's a concern about knowledge between Tov and Ra, The only thing that was wrong in the created world, what was the only thing that was wrong that God had to fix? Adam needed a partner. Loneliness. Loneliness is so dreadful that it was a flaw that had to be repaired. 
Everything was perfect in Eden, except he was alone. For me, a profound teaching from our tradition about what it means to be human. It means we are in partnership. We must have an ezer kenegdo. It doesn't have to be sexual, but we must have relationship or it's it's not tenable it can't st- god can't stand it and fixes it it's the only thing that gets fixed and the other concern is that we shouldn't once we have a certain kind of knowledge we should not eat from a tree that would allow us to live forever that there is something about our new understanding of who we are of our place in the world, of what our actions and inaction can do. That means we shouldn't live, any of us, forever. Um, A story for me about not only the loneliness of Adam. For the rabbis, forever this story has been interpreted as a response to God's loneliness. God didn't want man to be lonely. Because God knew knew something about Loneliness. And every religion looks for a way to live forever. Reincarnation. All kinds of suggestions. All kinds of theories. It's interesting that every culture has created. Yes, that it's, it's the primary human concern is our own knowledge of our own finitude. That, that this is the existential challenge of being a room, isn't it? Including, including today in, Cal- in the United States, in California, there are myths about how we can live forever. Right? This is... Yes. We don't get told anything about its origins. Do rabbis interpret this as the serpent from the same place God is from? No, God forbid. God forbid. The rabbis don't spend a lot of time wondering about the nachash. They see it as an embodiment of evil, of the yetzer hara, the inclination to evil. Christianity goes so far as to equate nachash with satan, and I believe it's probably in the Talmud also a hint that nachash, satan, and the angel of death are all kind of you know, there together, knowing that, of course, for us, Satan is not what the Christians made it. It's just the prosecutor. So, so the, for the rabbis, it, it's just the, the character that moves things along in terms of agitating, um, tempting, right? I believe the nachash comes from a very long history of goddess-worshipping cultures in the Fertile Crescent, in the ancient Near East, or at least 
other gods, you know, who their image was a serpent. And we know this from temples where people would sleep and serpents would be there. So it's definitely a connection to something other than a regular animal. The rabbis don't care so much about it. Feminist scholars are very interested in the ways that it represents a worship of the mother God because Eve is going to step, right? It's going to be in this relationship of, uh, we skipped it, but, you know, kind of stepping on it. It's going to be biting at your heel and you're going to be stepping on it, right? The message is very clearly that needs to be denigrated and the male God now is all-powerful, so there's, you know, there's lots of levels, but what, what did you, what, what, where were you going with the Nachash? I was just thinking about the opposition between the serpent and God and the patriarchy and the matriarchy and that whole dynamic that plays out in this narrative. Yes. And I, and I, I mean, for, I'm just thinking about it. Uh, yes. So, and definitely do some digging, yeah. do some reading. It's, it's fascinating. Inflict. We inflict uh, today, and we hear from the Bible that God said being alone is not good. Uh, On its face, it is cruel and unusual to 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 practice this. this. Right. Right. All right. Did I see one more hand before we close? It's an excellent question. My, and I haven't thought it through, but my kishkas tell me that it's because there's this knee-jerk need to explain death in terms of our sin. And in some ways, I believe to pin it on Eve, right? The, the cruel nature of what it means to be self-aware and work so hard only to die we need we need some kind you know that the that's the knee jerk anxiety and so that's what the focus is is because she ate you know, we sinned we you know and that becomes the focus and I think it's very important to shift the focus back to the fact that there was a potential for living forever that has slipped through our fingers along with naivete because on the one hand. That's a terrible thing to know. On the other hand, it would have cost us any self-awareness to live forever. Right? I mean, that it doesn't become... I don't know if you've watched any science fiction, but the science fiction that, that writers are writing, when you have beings that live forever, they're not happy. Right, that's the they're other not good thing. They're, they become so unhappy, they're often not good because they're bored. They're... I mean, there, there's a way, you know, and so I think that there's a deeper relationship to the question of being 
mortal that gets skipped the minute we have this knee jerk. Well, she ate and therefore death entered the world. I think it's just too clean and it's too simple and it's, it's not nuanced nearly as much as I think the text is, actually. Or as difficult as this knowledge of our own mortality is, the alternative really is not so much better or worse. And so let's just move on from that. And let's cling to the eighth Chaim. Let's cling to the eighth Chaim we do have. What is the eighth Chaim we do have? You said it. The Torah. Torah. Wisdom. We got it. We've got Da'at. We're stuck with it. And it means we're mortal now, forever. Like there's no possibility not to be now that we have Da'at. So let's use Da'at, right? Let's pursue Da'at because that's what we've got and that's what makes us like God. Ah, talk to me, Sarah. That's, that's a uh, more reconstructionist interpretation, right? That through the generation which we have fostered, life continues. And, and therein lies... And has our stamp on it. And therein lies our immortality. What is the very next thing that's going to happen after what we just read? Eve gets pregnant. Once knowledge of the finitude and once the angel with the fiery sword cuts them off from the possibility of living forever, what happens? She becomes the creatress. Yes, with their three. She, God, and Adam now will create the generations wherein lies our only possibility for immortality. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.